Well, let's open your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezekiel. We're in chapters 8 through 11 tonight. And the title of the message is Trouble in the Temple. And once in a while, you'll hear about a church that has trouble. And uh, we always regret that. There's usually something not good going on in a church that has trouble. But this ancient temple was in really, really bad shape because of what was going on in it. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But in the midst of this um, very difficult passage of Scripture and the message that God delivered to Ezekiel, there's also hope. And I'm very grateful that any time that God gives strong messages about sin or judgment, there's always hope. There's always hope with a God who is the God of hope. So tonight we're looking at these four chapters of Scripture. We're just going to go through some verses in each chapter. I won't be reading uh, every verse in every chapter. But I, I believe that as we go through this passage, um, you'll see enough in these verses that you'll understand what was going on in this temple in Jerusalem and why God was so upset with what was happening there. But before we read, let's uh, bow for prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It's alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And tonight, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired this wonderful word, uh, Lord, will illumine our hearts tonight. We pray you will, so that we can understand your word, that, Lord, we can apply it to our own lives, and that, Lord, uh, we might obey you more, serve you better, and love you more as a result of our time together tonight in worship through music and in worship through the study of your word. Thank you again, Lord, for letting us be here tonight, and we pray it all in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. All right, I hope you have your outline. Did you get an outline as you came in? Good deal. All right. Then, let's look at point number one. Point number one is this, the temple desecrated. The temple desecrated. I want to read the first part of chapter 8, and uh, we'll go down through verse 5 to start off with. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month. Now, he's dating that from the time that he went into captivity, and this was about 14 months after chapter 1 where he had that vision of heaven. So the next one he had is here 14 months later. As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, so they've come to him. You may remember from last week, God told him, I'm going to keep you in your house. And uh, the word was getting out, though, that there was a prophet there, and the elders came to hear what the prophet had to say. The elders of Judah sitting before me that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward fire, 
and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. That's a very similar way he described the presence of the Lord in chapter 1 as well. Verse 3, he stretched out the form of a hand. Now notice here, as we've seen uh, over and over again in Ezekiel, and we'll continue to see, he says it looked like a hand. It, was, it looked like the form of a hand. He, he, he didn't say it wasn't necessarily a hand. That's it, what it looked like to him. And he took me by a lock of my hair. Now just imagine that. This thing that looks like a hand from God is reaching out to Ezekiel, and he's grabbing hold of a lock of his hair. And the Spirit lift me up between earth and heaven. Can't you just picture here God's hand on Ezekiel's hair, and the Spirit lifts him up by his hair, and the Spirit lifts him up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions. Now notice this. Remember, this is a vision. Ezekiel did not actually go to Jerusalem at this time. This is a vision of God. He brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, that's of the temple in Jerusalem, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. That was He was talking about again, chapter 1. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. What was going on in the temple at Jerusalem was that the people were wholly given over to idolatry. And this is what God is showing to Ezekiel right here in the first part of chapter 8, that there is an open, uh, they are openly worshiping an image. When God refers here to an image of jealousy, he is referring to this image, this idol that makes him jealous. You remember God said in, in Exodus that I am a jealous God? And some have stumbled over that saying, well, why would God be jealous? Isn't jealousy a sin? Well, it can be when it refers to us, but it's certainly not a sin when it refers to God. God is jealous, rightfully so, because he is the only one who is worthy of praise and honor and glory. And if people who are made in the image of God, are worshiping and honoring anything other than the one true and living God. That means that God is jealous. He deserves all of their worship, all of their praise, all of their honor. And if they're giving it somewhere else, they are not doing right. And God wants the, the entire heart of every human being to be focused on Him, to love Him and serve Him. And so first of all, openly... They are worshiping an idol, but also secretly, at least they think it secretly, they also are worshiping idols. Skip on down to verses 11 and 12 in chapter 8. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. 
Then he, that's God, said to me, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. And they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Now, these are the leaders of Israel. These are the elders, the one who are in charge of leading the Israelites there in Jerusalem and in Judea, and they are leading the way in idolatry. What they're doing is behind closed doors in darkness, so they think that nobody is seeing them. Well, maybe no other humans are seeing them, but they cannot get away from the presence of God. David said in Psalm 139, the day and the night are alike to God. So people who think they uh, can get away from the presence of God or God doesn't see them at night, and that's why the Bible says people who sin, people who get drunk, get drunk at night because they think that they can get away with it. They think nobody will see them. But God always sees, and God shows Ezekiel that these elders, these people who should have been the spiritual religious leaders in the city and in the area are actually practicing idolatry. They've got their censers that are filled with little coals that smoke is rising out from them. They have their own room inside the temple. They have their own idols set up inside the temple. But what man thinks he's doing secretly, God is going to show openly and publicly. So they were, the temple was desecrated openly. It was desecrated secretly. And letter C in, in your outline, it was also desecrated shamefully. Look at verse 14. So, well, let me read verse 13. He said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations than they are doing. So it's getting worse as it goes along. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, who in the world is that? Who is Tammuz? Tammuz was a Babylonian god who, according to the teachings of the Babylonian pagan uh, polytheistic religion, this person, this Tammuz, was the god of spring vegetation. In other words, when the spring of the year came, they credited this pagan god with causing the earth to produce greenery in the springtime. And then, as the year went on, especially in that part of the world, uh, where the, the uh, temperature is so dry and the humidity is real low, and the sun comes beating down real hard and, and hot in the summertime, the greenery that was there in the spring withers up and dies. And so they were taught that their god, Tammuz, dies during the summertime. And then when spring rolls around again and the green came up again, then Tammuz comes back to life. And here are these Jewish women, these Hebrew women, who are supposed to be worshiping the God of heaven, and they are crying over the supposed death of a pagan deity rather than 
worshiping and praising God, who is the God who made the seasons, who is the God who created the wheat and the corn and the fruit of the trees so that his people and all the people of the world could enjoy the fruit of the land and the fruit of the trees. God made that originally in the Garden of Eden. He is the one who put it there. He's the one who created it. He's the one who ought to be worshiped and acknowledged as the one who gives food and water to drink to his people, and yet what are these people doing? They are saying, no, it's not the one true living God of heaven. It is this pagan false God whose name is Tammuz, and he's died, and we're crying over his death. Shameful that people are giving credit to a God that's not a God and rejecting the truth about the God of heaven. Still true in our day, isn't it? Still people in our day, they would tell us it's all science. It's all about science. You just have to follow the science. You have to believe the science. Well, I'm not against science. In fact, if you understand science rightly, it is a wonderful and great tool. In fact, some of the greatest scientists who've ever lived have been Christians. And their desire was to examine and study this great big world that God made so we could understand it better. But ever since Darwin has, uh, and Darwinism has ruled the day in so much of science and many other things, they say, you don't need God anymore. Just study the science. They don't have a good answer for why is there everything that's here. They don't know why we're here. They don't know why there's something and not nothing. But we do. We know there's something in nothing because God has always been around. He's eternal, and he created us to know him. That's why we're here, and that's why he put everybody on this earth who's ever lived to know him, to love him, and to serve him. But people who reject that truth have to find something else to worship. If they don't worship God, they will worship science, or they will worship sports, or they will worship uh, power, uh, or they will worship politics. They will worship something else to fill the void in their life. These women had void in their life, just like those elders did. They had a void in their life. But instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping the false idols of Babylon. And then they also, the temple was also desecrated defiantly. Look at verse 16. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Now, get the picture here. Here's the temple. The, the front door, so to speak, of the temple always faced east. Of course, it was a building, and so it faced east. But the tabernacle before that, uh, that uh, mobile tent that the Israelites took around with them for 40 years in the wilderness and later after they got into the uh, promised land as well, anytime they set it up, it was always facing east. So when the temple was built, the entrance to the temple faced east. So here are about 25 men and they are near the temple, 
but they have their backs turned toward the temple and their face toward the rising sun. So what they're actually demonstrating here is they're turning their back on God and they're turning their face toward something God created. Why is there a sun? There's a sun because God created it and hung it out there in space on nothing. And they have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of God's creation. You see why there's trouble in the temple? As it says in the book of Romans chapter 1, people have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the creatures that God created. So God put up with it for a while. He, of course, never wanted them to do this, but was gracious and merciful in sending them prophet after prophet after prophet to tell them, repent or judgment is coming. He would raise up various armies over the course of years to try to straighten them out and show them that if they didn't repent, that they would be destroyed and they never fully believed him because shortly after they would get disciplined by some foreign pagan army one long before they were right back at it again. It was the time of the judges that was uh, over and over again that gave way to the kings, but still it was the same problem. The people of God would not worship and honor him. The temple desecrated. Secondly, the temple defiled. The temple defiled. This is in chapter 9. I want to read verses 4 through 8. And then I'll fill in these letters under A and B, okay? Verse 4 of chapter 9. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. And they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and, go and, and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone, and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? What's going on here? Well, God has sent some angels to Jerusalem. Again, this is all in vision form. He has sent angels to Jerusalem, led by, I believe, uh, the Lord Jesus, the one who's dressed in linen, the uh, angel of the Lord, 
who appears many times in the Old Testament. It doesn't say he's the angel of the Lord, but I think that's who it is. And he said, go through the midst of the city and Jerusalem and put a mark, verse, verse 4, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. In other words, not everybody in Jerusalem was given over to idolatry. There were some who were grieved over what was going on in the temple and in the city, and they were weeping over the condition of the city. You know, when you think about the condition of our city and our country and our world today, ought we not also be weeping over the condition of our city, our nation, and our world today? We are in a terrible way. And unless God intervenes with mercy and revival, we are doomed. But these people, God said, put a mark on their forehead. It was important that those who were seriously praying for God to intervene and they were concerned about what's going on in Jerusalem and in the temple have that mark on their forehead. Now, there's coming a day when there'll be the mark of the beast and, and a person who's alive at that time, they'll be in bad shape if they take the mark of the beast on their head or their hand. That's in Revelation. But this is not that. This is a mark of righteousness. This is a mark where God is marking those who know him and are praying, concerned about the condition of the land. And he said to, he said, uh, to the others, verse 5, he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. What's going on here is that God said in this vision, I've just had enough. I'm not going to wait until Babylonians come and kill all these people because of their sin. I'm going to send my own angels in there to do it for me. And so the angel, dressed in linen, goes out into the city, marks those people on their forehead who have been praying and earnestly seeking the Lord. And then after that, he says, the rest of you now, you go into the temple and into the city and take out your sword and start killing people. Kill men, kill women, kill children. Don't have any pity on them. I have been compassionate so uh, long enough. It's time for it to start. And so it started at the temple. And God said, you know, back uh, the law of Moses said, if you touch a dead body, you're defiled for seven days. And they never wanted to have a dead body, of course, in the temple. But God said, start in the temple. Put these people to death in the temple. Let them fall dead in the temple. Defile the house. He was showing them how disgusted he was with their behavior. They had defiled it with their idolatry. Now it was going to be defiled even further with the death of these people falling dead as a result of uh, the sword piercing their skin and their falling in the temple. But there were some people who did not taste the sword. And who was that? That were the ones that had the mark on their forehead. Let me tell you about that. The word that's used here for the mark to put on the forehead of those who were praying 
was the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's called tall. We would say it's a T. And the way they made it back in that time was it looked like a cross. So what God said was, spare those who are under the mark of the cross. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? Here are these people, even back then, that God said, it takes the power of the cross to survive the judgment of God. And those who are marked by the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood on that cross and died as our substitute there, we who have kneeled before him, who have knelt before him, confessing him as Lord, we've got the mark of the cross in our hearts. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So let me ask you a question tonight. Has God marked off your heart with his cross? If he has, friend, you are secure for all eternity. The temple defiled. The sinful were killed. Letter A, the faithful were spared. The sinful were killed, and the faithful were spared. Now let me move on to point number three. It's in chapters 10 and 11. Point number three is the temple deserted. The temple deserted. Look with me now at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. That's very similar to what he saw in chapter 1 when he had this vision of heaven. And then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels... Under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. Letter A under your outline there in point number three is glory filled. Glory fills. The one who's sitting on the throne here in verse one, that's the Lord God. He spoke to the man who is clothed in linen, that's the Lord Jesus, and said, verse two, go in among the wheels, grab where the, um, under the chair, where the coals of fire are, grab some, take them with you, and scatter the coals over the city. Now, what was the purpose of that? It was a twofold purpose. These coals, first of all, would purge, symbolically, they would purge the city of sin. You remember when Isaiah had that great vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, Woe is me, 
For I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And an angel took tongs from the altar, or took tongs and from the altar took these burning coals and touched Isaiah's lips with them and said, your sins are purged. That's what's going on here. Your sins are purged. So fire purges, but it also purifies. And so symbolically what was happening here was that the Lord was purifying and purging the city. But now in verse 4 it says, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub. Where was the glory of the Lord manifested in the temple? In the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? And the mercy seat was that gold lid that was on the top of the box called the Ark of the Covenant. There were two cherubim, one on each end of the box, the Ark of the Covenant. And God would manifest His presence there above the cherubim, between the cherubim, between the wings of the cherubim, and above the mercy seat. And so here, that's what this means when it says that God's, God went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. That is the entrance of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud. That is, the house was filled with the glory of God. And the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. What's going on here? It is God filling his house one last time before he's about to leave. And if anybody happened to be there at that moment, they would experience the glory of the Lord in a way that they had not ever before. Because normally God's glory would be shown only to the high priest, only one day a year on the Day of Atonement, inside the Holy of Holies. But here, he is showing his glory, and it filled the house. The full, the full, uh, rather the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So here the house is filled, but then the glory moved. Look at verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. Again, that's the entryway. And stood over the cherubim. In other words, it went back to where it was. This is God's glory. He's manifesting his glory first over the threshold, which covered all of the court. Now he goes back uh, inside the Holy of Holies, there where the cherubim are. And so he moved there and for, was there for some period of time. But then look with me at chapter 11 and verse 23. And the Bible says here, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. You've seen glory filled, glory moved, and now glory departed. God's glory has departed the temple, and now he is departing the city. He is over on the Mount of Olives. It's the mountain just to the east of Jerusalem. It is the mountain upon which you would look if you could stand at the eastern gate now in Jerusalem. You can't do it because it's closed, but one day it'll be reopened. But if you could stand right there and look out to the east, 
you would see across this big valley called the Kidron Valley, across there, you would see the Mount of Olives. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've seen it probably from the other direction. Most time when you go to, to Israel, you'll, you'll go to the Mount of Olives and look back on the city of Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful sight. But uh, this, is, this, is what, this is where the glory of the Lord went. He left the city of Jerusalem, and he is on his way back to heaven. That's very telling that uh, the glory departed from the Mount of Olives. And you know why that is? Because the Mount of Olives is also the place where Jesus ascended after he was crucified. And on the 40th day after he rose from the dead, he was with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And that is where he ascended back to the Father. It's also the place where he's going to descend again when he comes in power and great glory. He's going to step his foot on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two north to south. The Mount of Olives is such an important piece of real estate in God's economy. It is the place where the Holy Spirit goes up from the city of Jerusalem, having left the city. It's the point where Jesus went up back to heaven, and it's the point where he's coming back when he comes in power and great glory. But at this time, the temple is in great distress because the glory of God is left. And even though after the Babylonians burned down and destroyed the temple and later it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and others, there's never any indication in the Word of God that the glory ever returned to the temple until Jesus came. And the day that Jesus was brought by his parents to the temple so that they could do with him according to the law of Moses. Anna, the priestess, saw him. And she said, the glory of the Lord is fulfilled. I have seen him now with my eyes. The very glory of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as an eight-day-old baby boy, is the glory of God who's come back to the temple. But now finally, I want you to see all of this trouble in the temple. But here's where the hope comes in. I want you to see the new temple declared. Point number four, the new temple declared. And I want you to look with me now in chapter 11, verses 16 through 20. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off, among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where I have, where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel, and they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there, then I will give them one heart 
and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The new temple declared. It's not a temple made by hands. It is a temple of the heart. God said, even though I have, I have caused my people to be exiled into foreign lands, I'm still with them. Look, that's what he means here in verse 16. Notice, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they've gone. Even though they have been exported from Jerusalem and the temple and Judea, and they are in Babylon or wherever they may be, I am with them. The word sanctuary there means holy place. I will be with them. They needed to begin to learn that God was not just confined to one place called Jerusalem and one temple area where Solomon had built that temple. God was not the God of one place. He is the God of everywhere. He is the God of omniscience. He knows all. He is the God of omnipresence. He is everywhere at one time, and yet he manifests his presence uniquely as well. And so what you see here is letter A is God with them. God with them. I love the promise of Jesus when he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These ancient Hebrews needed to learn that lesson that God is spirit. And as Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, they who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Can you worship God while you're uh, at the lake on Sundays? Yeah, but it's better to be in church. But you can worship him anywhere because God is everywhere, but you still need the fellowship and love and, and uh, discipline and accountability of the people of God. So God is with them where they are, and he says, I promise you I'm going to do something marvelous in their lives. I'm going to give them a new heart. Look at verse 19. Then I will give them one heart, that is a unified heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. I'm going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. And notice what he says about that heart and that spirit. I will give them, verse 19, one heart and put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Here is God promising that there's coming a day when he's going to take out that stony heart that every human being has and he's going to, for those who love him and trust him, he's going to give them a heart transplant. He's going to take out that stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. Stone is unresponsive, but flesh responds. What he means here is I'm going to give them a heart that will respond to me, that will love me, that will serve me, that will walk with me. I will have fellowship with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And when the Lord Jesus came and when he died on that cross and when he rose from the dead and when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, all of that was fulfilled because he is in us. He has taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh so that we can know him and love him and serve him and follow after him. And we're going to be doing that for the rest of our lives and for all of eternity. And it just gets better and better. 
God with them, a new heart, a new spirit, and finally a new relationship. That they may walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people. My people. And I will be their God. Are you in that group? Are you in God's people? If you are, it's by His grace. And if you're not yet, you can be. The way to do it is believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead, repent of your sins, or invite Him into your life. Put your life in His hands. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a reason for living. He'll give you joy in the midst of sorrow. He'll give you light when it's dark. He will give you himself. Christ in you is the hope of glory.